This is the AIC Podcast with your moderator, Kevin Pei. This program is brought to you by the Committee on Education Technology of the Association for Surgical Education. Embracing the mission of excellence, innovation, and scholarship, the ASE is impacting surgical education globally. Hello, I'm delighted to be the guest moderator for the ASE podcast series as part of the Education Technology Committee. Our discussion today is entitled Learner Engagement with Virtual Learning Events. In light of the continued impact of the COVID-19 pandemic, I think we can all agree that this is a topic close to all of our hearts. My name is Nadia Baker, and I'm a third-year medical student from Washington University in St. Louis. Before starting medical school, I obtained my degree in statistics from the University of Florida, and since I've been here, I've developed a passion for surgical outcomes research and minimizing patient complications after surgery. I'm interested in critical care and cardiothoracic surgery and will be applying for residency this fall. I'm happy to be joined today by Dr. Katherine Caldwell from Washington University in St. Louis, and Dr. Karen Dickinson from the University of Arkansas for Medical Sciences in Little Rock. Welcome. It'd be great if we could take this opportunity for you both to introduce yourselves to our listeners. I'm Katherine Caldwell. I am both a resident physician and research fellow in the Department of Surgery at Washington University. Uh, my two major passions are in surgical oncology and surgical education research, so I'm really excited to be here today. Thank you. My name's Karen Dickinson. I've trained in surgery in the UK and the US and completed a general thoracic fellowship at the Mayo Clinic. After that, I completed an American College of Surgeons accredited educational institute surgical simulation fellowship and masters of education at the University of Houston. I'm currently working as an assistant professor of surgery at UAMS in Little Rock, and I'm the director of interprofessional uh, education for simulation and clinical skills training. I'm really excited to be joining you both today. Thank you both for joining me today to talk about this very important and topical issue of learner engagement with virtual learning events. From medical students to attendings, I think it's fair to say that everyone has been affected by the rapid changes in surgical education that we've seen in the wake of the COVID-19 pandemic. Can we speak a little bit about how these changes have affected you both and some of the things that you've observed? So I think when COVID-19 started, um, we were learning as educators a lot about how this was going to affect us in, at the same time as all of our learners were. Um, and I think there was a period of time over a couple of weeks where very rapidly it became apparent that things were going to change very significantly and we were going to have to adapt to that. And I think that that's unique and unusual because it was a situation in which we didn't really have a roadmap and we were creating our roadmap in addition to our learners. I was really happy to be doing my Masters of Education at that time and uh, one of the courses I was doing um, was um, Universal Design for Learning, which really helped me to enable strategies to employ them for teaching locally um, and we actually worked on a paper to try and disseminate uh, this strategies and information for surgical education and that's one of the things that I, I think has really been great to come out of COVID although it is a tragedy um, and very devastating I feel like the surgical education community has grown and we're all learning from each other and I feel like disseminating our findings has been crucial for us all to find the best path forward uh, locally, for example, our surgical residents were either on rest week or on skeleton crews. And so we had to adapt to delivery of virtual education when we as educators were really not very familiar with that. And so I think staying abreast of the surgical literature has really been key 
for me. And I've really appreciated reading about everyone else's experience and trying to adapt that to our own local learning. Yeah, I agree that it's been really interesting to be both kind of an educator and a learner during the shift of virtual instruction. As a learner, I think I've really enjoyed the ability to do asynchronous or remote learning um, and to fit things a little bit better into my own schedule. On the educator side, I think I've had to do some kind of personal re-education about the way that I teach. And it's been a great excuse for me to try out some kind of audience response systems or new ways of teaching material that I've been teaching in the same way for the last several years. One thing that's been really striking is the fact that there is definitely an increase in your learner numbers. The ability to access things remotely has completely just increased the availability of the education. But on the educator side, it's really difficult for me to sometimes assess the engagement of my learners that I don't get that immediate feedback of looking at their faces sometimes to say, are they frustrated or confused? Yeah, I totally agree with that. I think that the virtual platform brings a lot of new challenges to us as educators and also is quite unfamiliar territory, really, or at least it has been. And without getting those usual in-person cues that we're used to reading in our learners when we're teaching. And I think there's no doubt that we've seen increased learner numbers during virtual educational events in the COVID-19 pandemic. And I think a great example of this is the American College of Surgeons Clinical Congress meeting that happened in 2020. Um, and actually looking at the website, they logged a record 30,000 registrants from more than 150 countries, which is phenomenal. And I think that that's a real benefit to dissemination of our um, content um, at the, in terms of conferences. Um, and anecdotally as well, um, in the Association of Surgical Education Committee meetings, there has been a, notice, a noticeable increase in attendance at these as well. Um, and both of those, I think, are really important. Um, and hopefully we're able to incorporate and continue that beyond um, this pandemic. It seems like there's an agreement that the virtual platform increases the accessibility of virtual learning events to learners, but I'd be interested to know what you both think about some of the issues associated with learner engagement. Can we talk a little bit about what we know influences face-to-face -face learner engagement first? So first off, when we're talking about learner engagement, what we're really talking about is both the quantity and the quality of a learner's participation with an educational session. Engaged learners are active in their learning and they're motivated and willing to participate. One of the biggest problems though is that adult learners, especially in the medical world, have tons of challenges to be able to offer that sort of learner engagement. And the first and most significant is focus. So whether you're talking to a group of residents or medical students or attending, the ability of those learners to engage with the material is limited by their ability to focus on it. Physician learners at any level have a lot of trouble with focus because they're always being called away by pagers, emails, phone calls, or too often their ability to focus can be limited by their physical state. Are your learners tired or hungry? Do they have focus on some other physical need that limits their ability to engage? Yeah, absolutely. I think engagement can also really be limited by the perceived relevance of the material. Um, and if learners feel that the material isn't relevant to them, then I think they're not going to be engaged. And we certainly have some really good data from qualitative analyses that demonstrate that both medical students and surgery residents value adaptability in their educators, their surgical educators. 
And I think problems that can arise include that if the material is being taught at the wrong level. So for example, are you giving a medical student a lecture on material that's too high level and really more appropriate for a surgical resident or a surgeon in practice? Or are you spending too much time on basic material uh, that a resident already knows? And if the material isn't taught at the right level, then I just think the learners won't be keyed into it. And that really plays into the challenge here. If learners are allowed to absorb information passively, it's so much easier for them to not engage with that material. So strategies that draw your learner in, whether that's open-ended questions, use of polling strategies or case-based learning, those things that ask the learners to interact with the material, anything you can do to increase that interaction makes it easier for learners to be engaged. Thank you. As learner engagement is so critical to the process of learning, it seems like it would be important to measure. Can we talk a little bit about current literature and some of the methods that we can use to measure learner engagement? Yes, absolutely. Yes, absolutely. It's very interesting that when you look at the literature, the initial tools for assessing learner engagement were actually developed for elementary and secondary education learning environments. But then when the literature expanded, and this was developed for the clinical environment, the first tool was called the AROS, or Attending Round Observational System. And this was really the first um, engagement tool that recorded the percentage of time phys physicians spent on certain teaching behaviors, the general discussion content. But even that tool was not specifically designed to record learner behavior. And it was not until 2003 that the first clinical learning-based in-person learner assessment tool was designed and validated. And that's called the STROBE tool because of the episodic observations that it involves. And this was designed by uh, a research group of medical educators, a psychometrician, a clinical educator, um, an allied health course director, and a basic science course director. And what it involves, in brief, is trained observer assessment of the instructor and the learners in five-minute cycles. And what is important during this um, and during the work of other related groups is that they found that it's really important to include a learner self-assessment of engagement in any tool. And this is key, really, um, to allow us as observers to detect fake engagement. And what I find amazing is that one study that I found demonstrated that for 42 out of the 46 times that a learner had pretended to engage, the observer recorded that the learner was engaged. So we have to, we have to address this issue of fake engagement in any tool or any study that we do. And as we've moved to a virtual platform, some technologies have also been used to try and measure learner engagement. And this is somewhat controversial. And an example of this is the Zoom attention tracker. Um, and that monitored eye movements of the learners in order to try and determine engagement. But that was actually removed by Zoom in April 2020 because of privacy and security concerns. So self-assessment as an educator is incredibly important here, and all of these metrics about learner engagement are just a great way for educators to get feedback about their sessions. So we can ask ourselves what we can do to help students interact with the knowledge, what worked or didn't work when those students were engaged. So using a metric like that strobe tool helps an educator pin down kind of the moment when you're losing your learners or what techniques are not getting the kind of appropriate response you wanted. It's interesting and fairly concerning 
about learners can fake engagement and fool observers in the face-to-face -to -face tool. What strategies do we have as surgical educators to increase learner engagement? So obviously a lot of the published work on increasing engagement has been done on face-to-face -face learners, but I think almost all of it is gonna translate into virtual education as well. And the first thing is for us to be really thoughtful as educators about the material you're presenting. And there was a really great paper about this that was published in surgery, you know, in April of last year um, by Clunan and Fingerit, reviewing some of the strategies to develop material for surgical learners. So you wanna be thoughtful about the design of your slides. And this is probably even more important kind of in the virtual world where that's all that your students are getting to see. Learners can only process so much information at a time. And so being thoughtful about the coherence between what's on the slide and what's being said, or focusing on graphics with narration rather than those big wall of text slides, you know, that you as a learner, you just you end up reading that. You're not listening to what's going on in the lecture at all in that moment. Yeah, I agree that there's there's a lot of challenges about increasing learner engagement virtually and even in person. And I think case-based learning is another really great way to work um, on engagement through medical education. And um, basing it on a case really makes it easy for medical learners to transfer the material that they're being taught directly into their practice. But the biggest challenge here is that the cases need to be realistic and relevant. And that harks back to what we were talking about, about making sure that you're educating at the right level. And they have to be engaging enough that the learners have to think through the situation from several perspectives, as they often have to do in real clinical practice, and it enables them to prepare fully. And you can also think about active learning strategies, things that help break up a lecture as you go through them. So it's been shown that a student's attention decreases after about the 10 minute mark during a traditional lecture. So you probably want to use really frequent breaks to stop and maybe do some quiz questions that transfer learning from that passive information transfer to active use of that information. You can ask learners to pair and share or one great tool that really transfers well into the virtual world that I'm a particular fan of is the kind of audience response system. So things like Quizly or Poll Everywhere, or even systems built directly into Zoom, allow learners to answer questions or share their thoughts. And these type of audience response systems are also a really great way for you as a lecturer to get feedback on a student's understanding to know maybe when you've got to stop and go back and cover something a second time if your learners just aren't quite there with the material. Understandably, most of the literature we've discussed today has been derived from face-to-face -face observations and tools. Can we talk a little bit about how learner engagement issues might relate to the virtual learning environment? A lot of surgical educators have just been thrown into this, and we're all learning as we go this year. Yeah, I think, I think what you say is a great point, that we're all learning as we go. And I think we have the same challenges of face-to-face -face learner engagement and then superimpose upon that we have the virtual environment with different tools perhaps as educators we're not as familiar with it um, from the beginning as we are with face-to-face -face or as comfortable um, and i think another thing that's really challenging is it can be even more difficult to tell if learners are engaged um, if people are participating in learning events without the cameras on. And I think that the distractions in the digital world uh, can be so much greater when it's easy just to click over to an email, 
the internet or social media on the next screen at the same time as you're participating in a virtual learning event. Um, or even some learners can be engaged in an entirely different task if you mute yourself and put yourself on audio, for example. And myself and Dr. Caldwell are actually really involved in some interesting work uh, on this on behalf of the ASE Educational Technology Committee. And we currently surveyed ASE members uh, on this topic of uh, virtual teaching and virtual learner engagement. And we found that most educators had got on a virtual learning event and then actually participated themselves in another activity when they'd been in the learner role. And one in five who did this did so always or often, which I think is very interesting. And even more interesting, female respondents were significantly more likely than males to join audio and then participate in another activity, which may speak to the social setup of households in this pandemic and also align with the findings of other studies that have suggested that the work-life integration or balance of women has been disproportionately affected by the COVID-19 pandemic. And obviously there are a lot of challenges to all of this, but the virtual environment really does allow for easy utilization of some of those new innovative strategies. Uh, there was a recent paper by Dr. Robert Chick from Brook Army Medical Center, which discussed some of those quite well including the use of a flipped classroom model and really encouraging learners to do all of their preparation asynchronously, allowing you to use lecture time for synthesis and application. Absolutely. And the ability for translation of several strategies into the virtual world is really rapidly expanding. I think operative videos have been a great way for surgeons to discuss learning. And in some cases, now we're in the virtual environment, they have been used to replace in-person simulation when we've been limited due to social distancing. Um, and many institutions have also been really skilled at implementing mock oral examinations through the virtual setting, um, allowing learners to rehearse for the exam, but also to practice their clinical reasoning. Several places, including here at Washington University, we've really worked on those unique ways to deliver skills training through virtual platforms. Um, so home delivery of FLS trainers or operative models. And many residency programs have actually developed setups so their attending surgeons can watch residents do practice sessions at home, um, allowing them to give coaching on techniques and improve their skill and still maintain that need for social distance. So I think there's really a lot we don't know about how virtual learning will affect the engagement of learners. And there are some, as you can see from our discussion, pretty significant challenges. But overall, I think that this has been a, a good experience for us to grow as educators and to increase the creative strategies that we're utilizing in order to educate our residents. It's clear from this discussion that face-to-face -face learner engagement might not actually translate directly into the virtual environment. I know that you're both involved in an ASC Education Technology Committee initiative that studies virtual learner engagement specifically. Can we please talk a little bit more about this very important work? Absolutely. So as Dr. Dickinson mentioned before, we studied both the perceptions and attitudes of surgical educators towards virtual surgical education and learner engagement. And that work has given us some really important insights about how we're working with the virtual learning environment. It's really interesting that educators feel that the format of the session and how much they plan to talk influences how they participate. So people who are planning to participate less often don't keep their video on. 
And most people responded that they actually feel less engaged when they're just on audio. So I also found it really interesting that when we asked about the chat function, most people felt that it facilitated discussions, but only about a third of them felt that it actually increased engagement. And even one in five people felt that it was a distraction, which I think is pretty important given how much we all seem to be typing in the chat in lots of these sessions. Yeah, I agree. And I think, I think these findings are so important to shape how we continue to deliver virtual education, especially as at the moment we're not entirely sure how this pandemic will continue and evolve, and even how surgical education post-pandemic will look. Um, and I think it is likely that the face of surgical education has been permanently changed by our, our experiences over the last year or so. Um, and just to talk briefly about the second part of the work myself and Dr. Caldwell are doing uh, with a working group for the committee um, is, to be to, is to develop a virtual in-class engagement measure. Um, and this is a virtual learner engagement tool that we have based on the structure of the strobe tool, but we've adapted the behavioral and learning event descriptors in order to apply to the virtual environment. Um, and our work group has been developing this um, through a multi-institutional project. And so far we've observed 22 learning events for surgical learners um, with looking at 839 learners. And we found that the tool is able to distinguish between learning events with higher and lower learner engagement. And it may actually be really helpful for surgical educators who are crafting virtual learning to ensure that um, we're using strategies to engage our learners and maintain that engagement more importantly as well. Importantly, though, we found that one in five learners self-reported as pretending to engage. And when we surveyed the teachers of the session, two-thirds of them felt that learners were more engaged on video. So I think these, these findings are going to be very important um, in how we take virt virtual surgical education forward. Um, it seems as though the issues of false learner engagement and inconsistent ability of educators to detect multitasking learners in the virtual environment are extremely prevalent. What can surgical educators do to try to improve this? One thing I think is really important is ensuring that your learners have protected time and space to focus on learning. It's hard to control the environment of your learners when they're outside of the lecture hall, but if at all possible, offering some quiet, socially distanced spaces for residents or medical students, um, defending those no page times when possible, that can really help your learners and their ability to focus. Yeah, I totally agree. And I think that thoughtful use of strategies like case-based learning or flipped classroom models, which I love, can really help learners. Um, and passive information delivery is much harder with those other demands on attention. And so really increasing the participation through discussion and Q&A sessions can assist learners in focusing and engaging with the material. And I would say don't be afraid to be creative or make use of new technology, whether that's sharing your operative videos or using some sort of audience response software that really gamifies learner response. There's lots of new ways to try and pull your learners into the lecture. And I think finally, learner feedback is so important. Asking learners about their experience or doing learner observations with tools to quantify engagement, like the VIEM tool, can really help educators identify areas of learning that are succeeding and those areas that need improvement. 
Thank you both for your time today and contributions to this very important and developing discussion. It was a pleasure to speak with you both. Thank you. Thank you. And this wraps up another edition of the ASE podcast brought to you by the Committee on Education Technology of the ASE. You can find many great resources on our website at www.surgicaleducation.com. Please subscribe to our podcast and we look forward to seeing you on the next one.